Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? You pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Those were Joni Mitchell's words in a song called Big Yellow Taxi that she put out in 1970, which later was covered by Counting Crows and Amy Grant and Bruce Springsteen and lots of people sang the song. Uh, but it's a great song that helps you think about what are the good things in life that you are in danger of losing. And we've all been there. Maybe you had a relationship and you're like, I didn't really appreciate that as much as I should have and now it's gone. Or maybe you realize that where you grew up or where you raised your family was just like this idyllic little situation and now it's gone and you're like, oh, I would have appreciated that more. I know that the church that I grew up in, people my age and older still look wistfully back at those times and that church it's really easy to not completely appreciate what you've got until you don't have it anymore. And that's what Paul is really getting at in the portion of Ephesians that we're gonna look at today. Paul is really hoping that the people that he's writing to will understand what they've got because they're in danger of losing it. We're in our second in our series of Ephesians, walking through that book. And so today we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 15 and following. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So most of this text is a prayer that Paul is praying for the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. He says, I add you to my prayers, I keep asking, I pray. And I want to start by just thinking for a minute about the power of prayer. I went out to coffee the other day with a person that I haven't known for a long time, but I've prayed for him forever. And as we talked, we talked about different stages in his life. And it was just really fun to be able to go, oh yeah, I remember that because I prayed for you doing that thing. I remember that because I prayed for you doing that thing. And I got to the end and he was like, thanks so much. I just realized how much your prayers probably affected my life. And I know I felt the same way when people come up to me and go, hey, I've been praying for you. I'm praying about this. Or is there's just something about knowing that you're being prayed for that is really powerful. Now, we can pave paradise. We can ruin everything because, you know, it's also possible to say to people, you know, I'm praying for you that you'll quit doing that thing that I disapprove of. That's not the same kind of quality of prayer as I love you. I'm concerned about your life. I'm praying for you. I want the best for you. I love it when people tell me that they're praying because prayer moves the hand of God. I mean, send positive energy if you must, but I'll take prayers any day. And how do you do that anyway? 
Whose positive energy do you send and how do you really do it? To me, it's kind of like a pale imitation when you can connect to the God who raised Jesus from the dead, but I digress. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, before we go further, let's play with glory and glorious a little bit. Those are not words that we use too much in everyday conversation. I mean, we might use the word glorious like, man, that was a glorious sunset, or what a glorious day this was, or maybe you've been to, I don't know, a concert or something, and man, that was glorious music. And when we use that word, we usually mean that it was extraordinary, or it was memorable, or it was unique. Glory and glorious is used a little bit differently in the Bible than just something that was extraordinary or memorable. And in this verse, it can mean a couple of things. The Father, and when we say Father, we generally mean God, even though we're Trinitarian, that's generally what we mean. The Father characterized by glory. I mean, what are, what's the properties of God? You know, he's wondrous and powerful and awesome. Glory. It could also be translated as the Father who shows his glory. And that might be closer to what Paul is getting at. Because in the Bible, glory often refers to what makes God visible. Moses asks to see God's glory. It was a way of him saying, God, show me who you are. And so God allows his glory to pass by Moses as he, as he hides him in a cleft of the rock. He and then he says, you can look. He revealed as much of himself as Moses could stand, but it was in God's glory that he was revealed. And what I think Paul is pointing out here, what Moses picked up on is that the God that we're talking about, the biblical God, the God of Jesus, is the God who reveals himself. God isn't hiding. God isn't away from us. God is the God who actively shows himself to us. And so Paul prays that they'll keep seeking God and seeing him for who he is. And one of the, another possible translation of Exodus where God says, I will allow my glory to pass by, is goodness. God saying, I will allow my goodness, one of the fundamental characteristics of God, I'll let my goodness pass you by. And Ephesians 1 earlier has already talked about that God is the God who's characterized by grace and mercy, his glory. And then in John 1, in John 1, 14, John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is most fully revealed. God shows himself to us in the most complete way in who Jesus is. Full of grace and truth, full of mercy, full of goodness. If you want to know what God looks like, what God's character is like, look at Jesus. And what an appropriate prayer this is for us now. Paul saying, I pray for you, not just the Ephesian Jesus followers, but us. I pray for you that you will see the God who reveals himself. I pray that you will see God for who he is, so that you can understand who he is, so that you can rest in his love and grace, so that you can accurately reflect who God is. And I really wrestle with that and have for a number of years are the things that we reflect to our culture right now, 
an accurate representation of who Jesus is. When you name the name of Jesus, when you post in social media as a follower of Jesus, when you converse with your coworkers, with your grandchildren, with your kids, with your friends, are the things that you say, the attitude that you say them in, the things that you hope for, the things that you stand for, are they accurately reflecting who Jesus is? So we might need some help with that, right? Well, we're in luck because Paul continues to pray. Verse 17, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That spirit of wisdom and revelation, it could be one of two things, which you'll find happens a lot in Ephesians. One of two things. Paul could be praying that your spirit would have wisdom and would understand revelation, or that you, that we, might have the Holy Spirit who will give us wisdom and help us to see what God has revealed so that we can know him better. Either one of those actually works. I mean, I wish that I was always wise in what I thought and what I did and what I said. It would save an awful lot of trouble. Like when you go, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm gonna do something else. And then you get all surprised when it becomes complicated and messy. I believe the latter is probably the better choice though. I pray that you would have the Holy Spirit who will give you wisdom, who will help you to see what God has revealed. It's not so much that we don't have the Holy Spirit. It's more, I think, that Paul is praying that we would pay attention to the Holy Spirit. I think Paul is praying that we would grow in being disciplined or being disciples, that we would grow in our willingness to listen to the Holy Spirit and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit because that will always be wise. And now we get to the big yellow taxi moment. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Paul is saying, I want you to see what you have. You have this amazing blessing in knowing Christ. You have this amazing hope. There's all these things that have changed in your existence and I wanna make sure you don't miss it. Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. What he's really saying is, I hope that the light goes on inside of you. That's really what enlightening the eyes of our hearts mean. In our deepest self, Paul is praying that the light would go on so that we would really see what God has done for us, so that we would really comprehend how things have changed in our lives because of Jesus, so that we would really know at a deep level the blessing of knowing Jesus. And Paul basically is stopping and saying, man, I really want you to know this. I really want you to get this. And the chief thing that Paul really wants us to get, that he doesn't want us to miss, is that we have hope. And we need hope. The Ephesians needed hope. And we need hope. Have you ever been hopeless? Have you ever not been able to see your way out or to see that things might ever change? That's a, that's a really dangerous place to be because without hope, we give up. Without hope, we get depressed. Without hope, we do destructive things. Without hope, we struggle to find meaning. 
a very common inscription on tombstones in the first century Mediterranean world was, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. That's pretty stark and pretty frightening if at the end of your life you realize that there was nothing before, what you did didn't matter, and now there's nothing after that. You might not want to put that on your tombstone, your family probably won't let you, but we struggle with meaninglessness. We struggle with lack of purpose all the time. I talk to people frequently. I see people post on social media. I watch the news, I read the news, I read stories of people who don't feel like their life matters, that there is no meaning to them. And what Jesus does is shows us that there is meaning in our lives. You matter. What you do matters. That you are matters. It matters so much that God does this whole Jesus thing in sending his son to live among us, to give us this picture of who God is, to die on the cross, to break the power of sin and death, to be raised again on the third day, to send into heaven, to be drawing us into a good future, and then to come back again and make it all so. When God raises Jesus from the dead, everything changes because now we have hope, and hope changes everything. Hope becomes the basis of how we live in the present because having hope affects the future. Uh, one of the great English theologians of the late 20th century, C.F.D. Moore, you don't have to remember that, won't be on the test, said, hope is faith standing on tiptoe. And I really like that. Christianity tends to lean forward with, with expectation because we believe that there are good things in store, even if things don't seem that way in the present. Now, hope is not a pipe dream. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not denying reality and, and believing in an alternate reality. Hope is linked to faith. Our hope is deeply rooted in reality, deeply rooted in the reality that Jesus is raised from the dead. One of the most essential factors or characteristics of Christianity is leaning into the future, a future that's good, a future that God is calling us into. It's kind of crazy because among the Christians that I know of who actually think about the future, a surprising and, oh, I might say frightening number of them really believe that God's preferred future is something like nuclear annihilation. And some of them are actually looking forward to that. But I think that's a real misreading of apocalyptic literature in the Bible because God's work is restoration. God's work is renewal. God's work is recreation. With faith in God, the hope that we have in Christ, the future is bright. People's lives can be changed here and now. And that's what we call people to. Knowing that God is making all things new, knowing Jesus gives us hope that things can change for the better, can change how we react, how we feel, how we think, and how we behave now. When we share communion, we have these little round wafers, and to be honest, I have absolutely no idea what they're made out of. I suspect it's rice paste, but it works. But it's not just bread or white rice paste or whatever it is. Those little communion wafers, those are evidence of hope. The fact that those wafers exist for us to be able to use to dip into the grape juice means that we're reversing oppression. It means that we are changing people's lives, that we are moving them out of exploitation. 
that we're spreading life and blessing and joy and hope. Because those communion wafers are produced by women who are coming out of the sex trade in the Hindustan region of India. They have no hope except that we have been able to go in with a bunch of other covenant people and give these women hope because we gave them something else to earn money. They had nothing left except the ability to sell their bodies. And now when you hold that communion wafer, you hold it because those women who had no hope now have hope. So by using those communion wafers, we're doing more than saying, be warm, be clothed, be fed. We're creating opportunities. We're giving hope. And one of the great byproducts of hope is a renewed vision. Imagine if you've been ex exploited your entire life and you can't see any way out of it. That's all you can picture. And all of a sudden you realize that there's something else. All of a sudden you can begin to dream again. All of a sudden you can picture a new reality that God is creating for you, sometimes through us and sometimes through really simple things like communion wafers. And I really believe that's one of the things that Paul is praying for here, that we would have a transformed imagination, that, that we would have a renewed and gospel-oriented vision about our lives and about the future that's filled with and characterized by hope. I pray that your eyes will be open so that you can see what you've got, the hope that you have in Christ. And then he goes on to talk more about what he's praying for, verse 18 the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We like inheritances because if you're gonna inherit something, it usually means something good is coming your way. It might be money, it might be a house, it might be property, stock, but something valuable is about to be given to us. So when we're talking about spiritual inheritance from God, what inheritance would you like to get from God? Okay, it's sort of a trick question because this isn't about an inheritance that God is giving you. Other places talk about that, but this isn't one of those places. This isn't about your inheritance. This is about God's inheritance, about what God is inheriting. Look at the verse again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What's the thrust of that? The thrust of that is that you are God's inheritance. The church is God's inheritance. That God is seeking after you the way that we look forward to an inheritance that we're going to get. Paul says, I wish and I pray that you could see that God looks forward to setting you free and knowing you deeply. It's why you were created, to know God and for him to know you. We are God's inheritance. It kind of gets back to our life has meaning and substance, doesn't it? And then Paul prays, verse 19, and that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The book of Ephesians focuses on power more than any other New Testament letter. It uses a bunch of different words for power and talks about what we have power over and what power looks like. The Ephesians would have understood 
power because Ephesus was a powerful city and it controlled a powerful area. We understand power, but what does power look like? When we think of power, maybe we think of power to make our lives easier or power to get what we want or power to save us from any unpleasantness or power to get a dinner reservation at the time you wanted at the restaurant that you want or power to get good concert tickets and great seats or the power to command a better salary or the power to make people do what you want them to do or maybe the power to affect the government and the decision that it makes or maybe power to protect the people that we love, or maybe even power to be able to help people. Those and lots of other things, I suppose, are, are what we generally think of as power. But Paul is talking about this incomparably great power for us who believe. And what he's getting at is whatever power you are smacking up against, there's a power that's greater than that. Whatever need you have, there is a power that is greater than that. Even if you're facing cancer or serious illness or death or crisis, there's a power that is greater than that. Paul prays that you would know God's power is greater because God's power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that's defeating sin and death and selfishness. It's the power that wins over evil of every kind and in every place. It's the power that triumphs over the principalities and the powers that enslave and oppress people. It's the power that breaks addictions. It's the power that confronts lies with the truth. I want to do just a little aside about lies. One of the parts of the power that we have is we have the power of truth. We're confronted by lies all the time. And one of the things as we move forward in an election year and with all of the divisive things that are happening in our culture, we need to be aware and acknowledge that Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said that we would know the truth and the truth will set us free. We need to make sure that we're living in the truth. We need to make sure that we're not giving lies any quarter. We need to make sure that we are speaking the truth. We need to reject lies even if they serve our current purpose because lies are from the pit of hell because the power of the truth will ultimately triumph over lies and we want to be on the side of the truth. And then towards the end of the passage, Paul says, verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. After, after all of this talk about power, after all of this talk about hope, where Paul ends is, I want you to understand that God has given all power and authority to Jesus and has made him head over everything for the church, which means it's Jesus's church. The universal church is Jesus's church. Harbor Covenant is Jesus's church. The temptation of my job is to be the cruise director, to just make everybody happy and to make sure that they have activities that they want to have. That's not all that difficult. The challenge is to make sure that Jesus is honored and glorified in all that we do. The challenge is to make sure that we're keeping what Jesus thinks is important, important. Not what the majority thinks is important, 
Not what large givers might think is important, not what the squeakiest wheel thinks is important, but what Jesus thinks is important. So as you look at our church, as you look at who we are, as you look at what we feel like God is calling us to, what do you think are Jesus's priorities? And if you had to list the top three things Jesus cares about, what wouldn't be on the list? And if you were to make a top three list of things that you're concerned about, what overlap would there be between what Jesus cares about and what you care about? And this is not just a rhetorical question. I'm going to get back to it in a minute. Paul prays that we would understand that and all of these other things that he prays about. Why does he pray these things? Why would he pray that they and us would have the light go on in our hearts so that we would see what we have in Christ? He prays those things because they're in danger of letting the light go out and missing the truth of the gospel. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. It will always be easier to pave paradise than to cultivate paradise, but let's not pave paradise. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, how does having hope in Jesus change how you look at the world and the future? Number two, in what area of your life do you need the power of God? And number three, what do you believe are Jesus's top three priorities for our church? And that's where this becomes not just a rhetorical question, because I would love to have you share with me what you feel like our church is called to. What do you think are the top three priorities Jesus has for us? Send it to me at michael at harborcove.church. I'd be really excited to hear what you have to say.